if you want to see in the deepest sense of the word who you are and somehow become liberated from the constraints of personality, I guess, it will help you do that. This is Daring to Tell, a podcast where I invite writers to read their true stories of personal daring. They read, I listen, we discuss. I am Michelle Rado. Nothing's gonna make me brave. Nothing's gonna make me brave. Nothing's gonna make me brave except doing what makes me scared. Who am I, anyway? I don't often spend that much time talking about me. Not that I don't enjoy talking about me as much as the next guy. I do, but this is a podcast and I am the host, so you're supposed to know me, I guess. But I've kind of come to that realization a little backwards. That's relevant to today's episode, and you will find out why soon enough. Being the person behind the microphone is new for me. It still feels new, and I've been doing this for over a year now. It's not anything I ever really wanted to do. I am someone who spent her entire life working behind the scenes at a radio station. I mention this from time to time, but I don't ever really talk about it. My job there was to write scripts and produce on-air promotional spots that would be read by other people. On-air personalities or reporters or voiceover talent. I was never the talker. I should say rarely the talker. I often struggled with finding the right words, getting them shaped, and figuring out the right message in the right amount of time. I didn't want to be cliche, I didn't want to be too cutesy, or do something that would get annoying after multiple listens, all that radio stuff. It was hard, and it was satisfying, but it was never about me. Now, after leaving that job, I have decided to write about me. I'm working on a memoir. It's also hard and has also been satisfying and also requires me to know my subject, which is me. And here's one thing I do know about me. I have been behind the scenes for so long, sitting in front of a microphone, knowing I'm the person who will open my mouth and speak makes me really nervous. So... Here's one little story. The one time I was allowed on the air for short durations of time was during our on-air pledge drives. So this one time I was sitting at the microphone with the other talent and with the on-air host. And we were getting ready for the break. The music is playing. The host comes out of the music introduces what's happening, and then plays an introductory on-air spot, so one of the pieces that I had produced, and that one also happened to be one that I had voiced, which really didn't happen all that much. So it surprised me to hear me as I was sitting there waiting to go on air, and I said, that's me! Well, my mic was on, (laughs) and I didn't know that, and I was like, oh shit, Uh, But I didn't say, oh, shit. Uh, (laughs) So 
I was very embarrassed. And then I had to come on and kind of like bring myself down and refocus on what I was there to say. Ugh, I was mortified. I get nervous. So before every one of these conversations I have with writers about their work, their words, I don't want to screw up. I want to talk intelligently about their work and how they arrived at their finished product. I'm also always measuring myself and my own experiences against theirs. It's sort of how I learn myself. Where do I feel the truth in their words? Where does my lived experience differ? I love it. It means the world to me. Each one of these writers, who they are, what they have to say, I have a huge passion to throw this spotlight on them and to recognize their work. Well, that's the part I am still working on. Today is no different, but it is a little different. I'm sharing a conversation I had with not just an amazing writer who I greatly admire, but she is also a person I call a dear friend. Yet, man, was I nervous. Because she's my friend and because I've been dying to know everything she knows about what she calls her favorite topic, the Enneagram, I was really nervous to get this right. I'm not sure if I did, but today is quite the discussion, a lot about me and me trying to figure out me by using one of the tools that has best helped me understand myself better, so I hope that it might do the same for you. But first, you must endure Michelle being Michelle as I introduce my dear friend. Susan Piver, I am so thrilled to have you on Daring to Tell. How can I introduce you? Best-selling author, leader of the Open Heart Project. When you and I first met, our other friend, who I have not seen in a really long time either, Cindy Matchett, had said, I met this woman, Susan, and she is fantastic. And she had known about all your hard questions, books, and she said, are you the Susan Piver? And she... (laughs) And it was great. So she's like, maybe we'll be in a writing group. So I am thrilled that we got to be in a writing group together. You introduced me to meditation. The cushion that is sitting in this room right now is the one that you so incredibly generously shared with me. So every time I take my seat, I think of you and think of you in so many reasons. Okay. Hi, Susan. It is great to have you here. Hi, Michelle. That was so great. I just went on a whole trip of our friendship and our relationship, and it was a really nice trip. And congratulations on your podcast. It's so great that you're doing this, and I'm really happy to be here. Thank you so much. It is so meaningful for me for so many reasons. But we are here today to talk about the book that is now out called The Buddhist Enneagram, Nine Paths to Warriorship. This is going to be a little bit of a different episode than sort of my typical episodes, only a small variation. Usually we're reading memoir, and you have a lot of your true stories about yourself in here, but this is also, the subtitle is Nine Paths to Warriorship, and it's a combination of Buddha Dharma and the Enneagram. And we also, on this podcast, I often talk with writers about writing. So 
why don't you first introduce me to yourself as a writer? Because I'm not even sure I really know the origins of you as a writer. Yes. Well, I wish I could say I wanted to be a writer and I wrote five novels and put them in a drawer and then finally someone agreed to publish me and it was horrible and then it was good. No, I was no such thing. No such thing. Like everything in my life, I would say, most particularly with my writing life, I have fallen into it backwards. And I'm not saying that to be cute or Mm -hmm. whatever. I fell into it backwards. This is over 20 years ago now. I was getting married and I had never been married and I was scared to be married. And I remember thinking, yeah, I love this guy, but so what? I love other people too that and I'm not those relationships ended why would this one not also end so I sort of had this epiphany that just because you love someone does not mean you will love your life together I was like oh my past relationships didn't end because we didn't love each other right they ended because we didn't seem like we would be able to make a life together that made us both happy right so I just wrote down a list of questions about life that I, when you're dating someone, you don't ask them. Mm-hmm. You know, how much money do you have? What is your kid going to call me? Yeah. Where are we going to live? Yeah. Things like that. And it was very beneficial for us. And a friend said, that would make a good book. Mm. And I happened to know someone who was an agent. I said, what do you think? He said, maybe. Here's how you write a proposal. So I wrote the proposal. and. It sold, you know, for a small amount. Yeah. And then it it was out for like a year or a year and a half. Right. And no, that was nice. That happened. Mm -hmm. But that didn't change my life. And then it suddenly blew up. It became a New York Times bestselling book. It was back in the day when you could go on the Oprah show and they just called out of the blue. I I was just sitting there minding my own beeswax. (laughs) I knew you were on Oprah, but the fact that they called you out of the blue must have been like, uh, hello, what? It's like, is this, is this my sister? (laughs) (laughs) Right. Is this a joke? So then it became weirdly very successful. Like other authors have gone on that show and everybody gets a, an uptick, but not everybody gets an explosion. And mm-hmm. I got, I did. And it wasn't because I was the best guest or the smartest or most erudite. It's because the book, I think, fit a need. It's just questions. That's all. Right. Right. And then because it did so well, I could write other books. Yeah. And I got offers to write other books. And it sort of went from there. And that's, yeah. And then I have a small stack of them here. Aww. That's sweet. <laughs> But I do want to add one other thing, Michelle, because I think for writers, you know, that's like, oh, that's great. And it is a dream. It was like mm-hmm. a dream. I'm like, what the hell? No expectation. But then what happened after that was horrible. Mm-hmm. The next two things I wrote were terrible. Duds mm. made everybody ang- not angry at the content, but angry at me. Oh, wow. It was a brutal experience. Because you didn't live up to what they had been led to believe or accept or find from you the first time around. I did not live up to what they had bet on me because those advances, they're bets. Right. Yes. And their bet did not pay off. And they were- So the people who were mad at you were not readers. No. They were people in the industry. Publishers. (laughs) 
to the publisher. And oh, it was God. devastating for me. It was one of the worst, most horrible experiences of, of my life. Yeah. And I thought, I'm never going to write anything again. Oh, God. And I didn't for probably five years. Uh-huh. And then I, you know, made a turn and it, you know, went from there. But I just want to be sure to say it wasn't like this, you know, romantic, yay, my dreams came true. It wasn't. It was and it wasn't. Right. Well, and that's most of the time something happens that's very good. I, I don't know. This will probably come into play with other stuff we talk about. But then you go, uh-oh, it wasn't what I thought or I can't, you know, keep laying the golden egg or whatever it mm -hmm. is. And so, yeah, that's really scary. And I can imagine a lot of self-doubt creeping in there. It was awful. And this must have been in, in the midst of your time studying Buddhism mm -hmm. and becoming a meditation instructor and also studying the Enneagram. So like maybe bring us up to speed a little bit on some of those too, so we can get to the book, I think. So yeah, thank you. Yeah, I've been a Buddhist practitioner for a long time, almost 30 years. Actually, next year will be 30 years. Wow. I don't know if it feels right to say congratulations to that, but that's, I mean, that's a really big deal. So thank you. I appreciate that. It is. I don't know how 30 years went by, but oh yeah, it was the pivotal moment of my life. And there have been the amount of days that I've looked back and gone, was that a good idea? Are zero, mm. like zero, zero percent wow. doubt. Yeah. Not yeah. that I know what I'm doing, but it was totally the right call. To know it was the right thing is. It's big. Yeah. So I also took an interest in the Enneagram at about the same time. Ennea, for people who might not know, is the Greek prefix for nine, and the Enneagram describes nine ways of being in the world, sometimes called nine personality types, but that's too reductionistic. It's nine ways of being. And they were just parallel interests to me. And then, yeah, I became a meditation instructor after I'd been a Buddhist and a meditator for maybe 15 years. Mm -hmm. And the reason I became a meditation instructor is also a falling backwards thing. I did work in the publishing industry, not as a writer. And I pitched a project to a publisher, St. Martin's Press. You should do a project about meditation. This is 15 years ago. I think it's going to mm -hmm. be, I think it's starting to get popular. And they said, well, could you write it? I said, no, I'm not a meditation instructor. Mm-hmm. Because I am very traditional in, in this sense. Yeah. And uh, they said, well, we would like you to write it. So I said, okay. And I became a meditation instructor. Wow. So I could write it with a sense of fully taking the responsibility. And and that was the first book I wrote after the whole fiasco. Wow. Period. And it's called How Not to Be Afraid of Your Own Life. That's a brilliant book, by the way, too. I think that might be the first one I fell in love with, possibly. So, oh, yeah. Thanks. Yeah, that set me on a different path. Again, not because it was my plan and I stepped towards it. It just happenstance. I love it when something like that happens in a backwards way. It's like, okay, well, we want you to write it, but I'm not a meditation instructor. Okay, well, I will become one. And we're going to hear you read a little bit of that, some of that story Part of me thinks, should we read that right now? What do you think? Because the way that happened also was backwards. 
Yeah, and gripping. So the things that I usually gravitate towards in any book, and especially with people I have on the podcast, is the stuff where I read it and I feel like my heart is in my stomach. And mm-hmm. I go, oh, shit, like, this is bad. This is scary. And this, I found this incredibly daring. So why don't, I, I was going to have you read it last, but I don't know if we're doing this in any particular order today. So let's, <laughs> we're talking about it now. Okay. And I have a little addendum that's not in the book that I would be, I'd really like to add to the end of the story, if you don't mind. Sure. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. This is actually from a chapter in the Buddhist Enneagram called the Enneagram as a path. Like, what do you do with, you know, you know, your type, you know, other people's maybe now what? When I was a child, I saw myself as a failure. I sucked at school. I mean, I sucked. Parents, teachers, counselors all scratched their heads. She's not stupid, was the most complimentary of the observations. My school failures were not the result of me being some secret genius who was just too bored by the plebeian demands of lesser minds and thus spaced out into personal reflections (laughs) on pre-Socratic philosophies or the inevitability of 3D printers. No, my friends, I tried really hard to do well in school. Hashtag fail. I flunked eighth grade. I barely graduated high school. I did not graduate from college. Okay, a lot of years have passed between those failures and this moment, and somehow I figured out a way to learn things. Eventually, I forgot about those early efforts to exceed, she's not stupid, in the eyes of others, although I dragged the I'm a failure notion with me until quite recently. It all came to a head in 2007 when I took meditation instructor training and flunked. Of the 40 or so participants who had qualified for the training based on a decade plus of meditation practice and study, graduation from a Buddhist seminary, and seven intensive 12-hour days of training, I was the sole failure. I stayed till the very end of the program It culminated in the other non-stupid students taking with great solemnity what was then called the meditation instructor's vow to do no harm and so on, watched by me sitting on the sidelines and trying not to cry. Until I got in my car to drive home when I burst into tears, I am a failure. What is wrong with me? I hadn't asked myself that question within a learning environment for decades, but at this moment, all the shame and frustration of being a terrible student and therefore a bad person and a failure came back to me. Was I stupid? How come everyone else, it seemed, could succeed where I fail? I ended up undergoing, at the advice of a therapist, batteries of intelligence tests I have no idea of what they revealed as credible in scientific communities, but the results helped me a great deal. Anyway, long story short, when it comes to learning styles, I am extremely kinesthetic, meaning I have to do it to understand it. Visual learning style, auditory learning style, not so much. In fact, almost not at all. Suddenly, my whole school experience made sense and explained why the only thing I was really good at was gym class, seriously. I found this extremely liberating. 
Instead of looking at myself through the eyes of long past theories of education and the fear and disappointment of my parents, I just saw me. I was fine. Once I dropped the other lenses, I saw someone who just was who she was. I'm not smarter or stupider than anyone. I'm just me. That is the beginning of ethical conduct. P.S. I was tasked with six months of remedial training to become an authorized meditation instructor, which I completed successfully somehow. The moral of the story, if there is one, is you are just who you are, period. Who is that? The best or only way to find out is to examine yourself very closely, not to fix or improve, but to know. What you examine could be called your ego. Of course, we all have one. It includes the ideas we have about who we are, who we ought to be, what we like, don't like, and so on. There are many spiritual teachers who say that in order to experience transcendence, you have to destroy your ego. You know what? They're probably right. However, the way most of us go about navigating beyond ego is to hate on ourselves while diminishing our most powerful experiences of desire, rage, and joy as just my ego. Okay, that's true, but how useful is it to shame yourself as a path to liberation? As one who has exhausted that methodology, I can say with confidence, none whatsoever. Now what? Please consider that because you have an ego, you also have the potential for freedom from ego. In this sense, ego and egolessness are intertwined and even inseparable. Because we have one, we also have the other. However, we can't start at the end and just rush somehow to egolessness by pretending that we don't matter and then embracing its corollary, pretending others don't matter. We have to take a much more nuanced and interesting journey than that. It begins with turning toward yourself, seeing yourself clearly, loving yourself rather than attempting to push yourself aside. The Enneagram describes nine perfectly formed, utterly gorgeous blocks or ego matrices. These blocks are who we think we are, and on one hand, we're right. But they also illustrate exactly what obscures who we really are, beyond who we think we are. We may veer between seeing our blocks as beautiful, which they are, and treacherous, which they are. Some, upon discovering their type, only see the block and wonder what possible good this system is if all it does is point out what is wrong with us. What is wrong with us is also what points us in the direction of liberation from it. Wow. That's... Did you have an addendum you said you wanted to mention? Yeah, I'll mention it shortly. Thank you. I So I flunked and then I was remedial, but I never got to take the vow. Oh. That's a, a ritual. That's a beautiful ritual. And to me, it was important. I want to complete this cycle. Yeah. Yeah. So I was on a retreat maybe a year after this in Colorado in the wintertime as a student. And I asked the retreat leader, would you give me the vow? Like you need to take oh. it in front of someone. 
Yeah. He said, sure. So let's do it after the practice session tonight. And that night we were practicing this very intense text that is just super intense. I could just leave it at that. It's a, called the Sadhana Mahamudra. And it's a very profound text about how to wake up in the middle of the chaos of everyday life. Mm. And while we were practicing it, there was a blizzard, an intense blizzard. And we had an announcement in the middle of the practice saying, all roads in and out are closed. Oh, man. No one can leave. No one can come in. And we're chanting this intense thing and the blizzard and the lightning bolts and all that. And so that was intense. And then at the end, I thought everybody would leave and I would just sit with the teacher and he would, I would re recite the vow to him. But that's not what happened. At the end, he said, Susan Piver will be taking the meditation instructor vow. So I came up and I sat in front of like 100 people. Wow. And it was just me and him on the meditation cushions like you have facing each other. And he gave me the vow and I recited it and there was the lightning and the thunder and the drama. And wow! at the end, I was like, yeah, this was a really good way to take this vow. I'm happy it worked out the way it did. Yes. That's amazing. I mean, I just feel like sometimes when you let go of everything, this is where like this whole book, everything that I think about and the writing that I'm trying to do, it all can imbue such meaning when you just stop and pay attention. And I am not saying that terrible things happen for good reasons, because I don't think that mm -mm. at all. But I also think that sometimes things happen for why they do or or what happens ends up having more meaning. Yeah. Because it does. I don't know what you think about that. No, I totally agree. And for some people, they can. Their karma or their wiring enables them to make plans and drive towards those plans and execute their goals. Yeah. And I love those people. And I am not one of those people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I don't even know what kind of person... I am. And that's that's the other reason why um, I'll, I'm just going to veer off from, I, I don't know, no. as I've been trying to write my memoir, which I think you may know a little bit about, because I don't talk about it a lot, honestly. I don't talk about it a lot. On, I mention it on the podcast from time to time, but I have really been trying to figure out who am I? And it is only in trying to write my experience that I have come close to, mm. to figuring that out. Mm -hmm. And so I feel like uh, more than a decade ago, when you and I had some very intense and meaningful conversations, um, we talked a good deal about the Enneagram. And I feel like I've heard you say and read your words many times, like, it's my favorite topic. It's what I always want to talk about. <laughs> True. And I was always like, wait, I want to hear more. So first of all, I feel like I've been waiting for this book uh -huh. forever. Every time I can like get more out of you with what it what is this Enneagram? I think way back then you were asking me questions like, do you think you're more of a heart person? Do you feel things more? And you having talked about being a four, which I, I'll like 
set up for people who don't know anything about it. And please correct me when I, you know, stumble astray. But there's three centers of intelligence. Mm -hmm. And people usually gravitate to one of these three centers of intelligence as their default. We all use all of them, but we have the people who default to their heads. We have the people who default to their hearts or their emotions. And we have the people who default to their guts Mm -hmm. or their instinct or their body. Mm -hmm. So I will say you have said many times you're a four, which is on the heart triad. That is the person who takes everything and the energy sort of goes inward, right? Yes, absolutely. Perfect. So I think that you had thought maybe you're also a four, you know, are you, and I go, maybe I'm a heart person. I don't know. And then I go, well, sometimes I don't know what I think. Am I a head person? I don't know. So it was not until, I think it was about a year ago in the winter, you gave an introduction to the Enneagram Mm -hmm. and you talked about all these things again, and you talked about the head and the heart and the gut. And it was not until Perhaps it is evident in our conversation so far that the talking style was saga. saga. <laughs> and I was like, oh my God, that's me. I cannot answer a question concisely, period. See, now I have even hijacked our whole entire conversation. I like it. I'm enjoying it. You were talking about because I'm like, I'm trying to remember when we first met, when we talked about the end. So, That when I said, wait a minute, what if I am a nine and what if I am a gut person? And six years ago in 2015, I had gut surgery. Mm. So it wasn't until in the aftermath of having that, uh, I hate saying these words, but I'm saying them, rectal resection surgery. Um, that I know <laughs> sounds very <laughs> uncomfortable fun for every sounds sounds not very fun, but in a funny way, it was among the top things that have ever happened to me in my life because you know what? Here I am mm-hmm. still having the chance to talk about it. And so my recovery from that surgery has been a time where I have had to really start paying very close attention to myself and to my gut, literally. And then something happened. I started feeling myself as a gut person. Mm. I think it hasn't been until I feel a thing with my body that I then go, oh, that's what I know. If I can even like be so bold as to say that I know anything because I feel like I have spent my whole entire life going, oh, I don't know. What do you want to do? Whatever anybody else wants to do is fine. And and I'm going to pause on because I'm going to go on too much about me. But why don't you tell me more about this book, Susan? More about what? <laughs> more about this book. Oh, this book. <laughs> yeah. Well, let me ask you Because I don't want to get too far astray. But okay. No, I don't think we have got, I think we're right in the center. I don't think we've gone astray. <laughs> but uh, let me ask you, what did it feel like to realize that you were a nine? What, what was it the talking style? And then how did you feel? Like, oh, what? I never heard this before. Now what? It was very much the talking style because I thought, oh my God, everything that I say is like a story and a digression and goes, where does it go from here? And 
I had to know that. I think that the writing that I've been doing, well, I've been writing for, I don't know, since about 2019, 2018. And I decided to cut, well, okay, so here's another little backward story. So I, at one point, um, Grub Street Writers, yay, Grub Street, who is awesome in Boston, they were having their Muse in the Marketplace agent pitch session. And I had signed up to do a pitch with an agent. And I had been working with a writing coach, Nadine Kenny Johnstone, who is my wonderful, amazing writing coach. And she helped me finesse 20 pages that I pitched to an agent who I think was actually a really good agent. She's a person who represents a lot of books that are very like scatological details about things like that's her zone. So I was like, I think I have the right person. And I had 20 pages. She read it. She was like very supportive in a lot of ways, but it was before I found my focus of what it was about. And I feel like now in a classic number nine, not knowing my one most brilliant question to her was, what do you think that this is about? <laughs> because I didn't know. Wow. It was because she's like, well, is it about, you know, my raised religion is one that was very difficult and complex. And so it's very much a story about that. But she's like, you know, I don't know if it's about that. And I think it's about finding your gut about living by your own way of knowing. Mm. So that was when I said, oh, I'm writing about, so, like this isn't really a colon story. It's not necessarily a medical story, but she helped me find focus that, and that moment I said, oh, guts, I'll call it guts. So I knew I was calling it guts Amazing. and I knew it was about facing fear because Everything, I'm afraid of pretty much everything, which could have been something that set us, you and I, like, well, fear is very sexy. Like, are you, that's why are you a, a six? And it's like, I am very fearful, but that's, <laughs> I'm a different kind of fearful, perhaps. So I found the focus of my book that helped me continue writing. And in the writing that I've done, I've been very like, okay, is this related to my gut, to facing my fear, to finding myself? And that's really helped narrow it. So that's another question I guess I have about the Enneagram, about the book. As a writer, it is just the most useful tool, not only necessarily for memoirists, but anyone who wants to understand people. Like I can imagine fiction writers using it as how do you create a character? Oh yeah. No, well, totally. That, that happens. I mean, I'm not a fiction writer and I don't know many or any, Yeah, but yeah, screenwriters, because that's very helpful in creating characters, not characters that are like paper cutouts of characters, but Right. Very rich and nuanced. Yes. And I often feel if when I watch a movie or a TV show or something, if I don't have some sense, and I'm not a perfect Enneagram typer, but if I'm like, I don't know what their type is, I, I often have the feeling, oh, that character wasn't well drawn. Because mm. yeah. you know, you know when you encounter the type. But as a writer, is that where you were going? Like, I guess so. Mm. Yeah, as a writer. But a bit about in relation to the book, I mean... The other thing about this and knowing you as I do know you as a person, you know, who's very interested in the very serious sides of life, mm -hmm. you know, I, that's where I feel like you and I have both very much connected. 
when you've written about, you know, you're not the like chatty person and you're not the like, let's go to a party and have fun. And I, I, I don't lean into those circles either. So when I have thought about the Enneagram, I've thought about it in a very serious way. And I've been trying to look at what it isn't. It's not like a personality typing system. I think any reductionist description of it bothers me. Mm -hmm. And I do feel like that coming into popular culture now are many, like you have said in the book and other descriptions, like what would the Enneagram person order in a menu? I don't know, whatever they are. These little parlor games, which is fun. But as my like feeling you receiving these questions I go oh that is not serious how (laughs) yeah well you know it's not there are real parallels to meditation right I'm a meditation teacher yes and you can look at meditation or mindfulness or whatever you call it as a a trick Mm. to become I don't know what a better leader get better night's sleep become more calm quote unquote fine but I'm pretty sure the Buddha did not teach meditation with the admonition that this will make you a better athlete. Yeah. It was, this will help you wake up. Right. So same practice that you use to become a better something Mm -hmm. is the practice you do to go beyond conventional mind. Mm -hmm. So it's the same with the Enneagram. It can be a very fun parlor game. What would a nine order at Starbucks and the paint company Sherwin-Williams recently came out with this paints by Enneagram number. (laughs) Okay, that's fine. That's great. A step beyond that is people using it for psychological reasons or, you know, transactional reasons. If you know this, you will Mm. be a better that or you will stop doing this. And that's good. It works that way too. Right. Totally works that way too. Right. But if you want to see in the deepest sense of the word, who you are, and somehow become liberated Mm -hmm. from the constraints of personality, I guess, it will help you do that too. Mm -hmm. So it's anything from, oh, Sherwin-Williams has co-opted it for paint names, to it will liberate you from suffering. Yeah, It depends on the mind of the user, just like the mind of the user in meditation. Mm -hmm. So I I find that to be emblematic of really profound wisdom traditions. Yes. It will stretch or constrict to meet you. Yeah. And in the beginning of this book, The Buddhist Enneagram, you talk about it within the context of the description as inscrutable. And I'm wondering if you might want to like describe that a little bit more for me as well. Yeah. The Enneagram is inscrutable. And in certain Buddhist traditions in the Tibetan side, as far as I know, that word inscrutability is used to indicate beyond beyond concept, mm-hmm. not opaque mm-hmm. only, but beyond concept. So, for example, nobody really knows where the Enneagram came from, right? which I find very interesting. Yeah. It cannot be traced back to an author mm-hmm. or a tradition right. or a teacher. Where did it come from? It came from somewhere beyond concept. It's the best I have. Yeah. And I've really looked for the answer, Michelle. Right, right. 
So inscrutable means something profound that cannot be grasped with the conventional mind. Yeah. And also can't necessarily be pigeonholed. I like what you were saying before about using it for an agenda. Um, because, hmm, I feel like I could go in two directions with this. And it's two, again, sort of two sides of the same coin. A lot of this is all two sides of the same coin. Inscrutability engenders trust was one thing that you had said. And that I, I guess the thing that helps me feel trustworthy, well, let me go back to another thing, sorry. The idea of using a system for an agenda has deep echoes to my childhood and mm. the religion I was raised in, which was Christian science. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. there was something about prayer that we used prayer as a way to heal our bodies. That's the objective, I'll call it. Mm -hmm. It was sort of like you had to know your allness and oneness with God to unsee the illness or the error or whatever it was. And then it would fall away because it was no longer a part of you. And once you relinquished it as a part of you in your mind, it would also fall away from your body. And I, I'm not saying that can't happen for people. And I think that it has. Mm -hmm. However, when you're a child and you're trying to figure out why you have a sore throat or whatever, that was a little challenging. And I thought, I didn't know how to pray for not an agenda. And so therefore sure. I spent my whole entire childhood kind of, I'll use the phrase I always use, which is I was doing it wrong because I wasn't getting the results. Now I see parallels in other spiritual systems. And that's why I find this both fascinating in a way that I am drawn to, but in a way that there's part of me that goes, whoa, wait, what is this? So that idea of what is trustworthy, I, I don't know. I can see how you don't want to use a system for an agenda. And I also think that when, when you do, I, I mean, I find it very interesting to say, who am I? And my goal is really to know who I am. I mean, I think plenty of books have been written with this know thyself theme, but what, do I have a deeper agenda with that? You know, like those, these are things I think about as I'm writing and I don't know if just, if that brings up, uh, that's why I'm curious again, to go back to the inscrutability and why is it a system that you trust? Hmm. I guess the reason I trust it is because of actual results. Right. It has changed and the way I look at- what do you mean by results? Sorry. Mm -hmm. That's okay. Yeah. It has made me more compassionate toward myself and others. It has given me joy. Mm -hmm. 
from self-understanding. Yeah. It had I use it every day of my life. It yeah. supports me to have conversations with people in a more skillful way. Yeah. than I would be able to otherwise. So I see it in my life. And that's what engenders trust is when you see it in your life. Yeah. So as with Buddhist practice, nothing happens when you're doing it. Yeah. You sit on the cushion, you're like, oh, when is lunch or why my knee hurts or I think I don't I'll never do this right. Whatever it is that we all do on the cushion. It's like, well, that's not very far. That's not very useful. But then when you look back, you see your whole life changes. Yeah. It's the same with studying the Enneagram. At first, it's like, well, that's really interesting. Like you and I both feel like I don't I want to know more. I don't know why I want to know more. It pings something that's like, that's good. That's important. I never heard that before. I, I'd like to hear more about that. So that's trustworthy. Yeah. That inclination, that what actually gets your attention, not because you think you should know it or because somebody told you it would be good for you, but because there's something inside you that just urges towards it. That's trustworthy. Yes, exactly. And and I think that you do hit on the fact that it's something within you. It's something within me that it hits on and you go that resonates somehow or I have an inclination towards this and I can't quite figure out why but yeah I I do I do and that's really important and the Enneagram for me this is similar to the Buddha Dharma when I first started learning about the Enneagram and Buddhism I would often have this feeling of I'd read something or hear something. I never saw that before. Nobody ever said that. Never, ever heard it before. Yeah. But at the same time, there was something familiar. Like, I knew that. Yes. I didn't know I knew it. Yes. Yep. And that's the tell. I, I knew it. Someone's giving you your own wisdom by saying something that causes an echo in you. And then it's yours. Yeah. Nobody gave yeah. it to you. It's like, I know that. It was already yours. Yes. It was already yours. Yeah. Absolutely. That's trustworthy. Yeah. I think this might be a good moment to have you read. I'm doing this all backwards. I'm going to have you read the prologue of your book. So Love to. do you want to go to that next? Love to. All right. Okay. So I'll read the preface with pleasure. It starts with a quote. We are talking about the mandala principle from the point of view of the map of enlightenment, said Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche. When I was a little girl, I had conversations with numbers it seemed quite ordinary to me. My childhood bed was in a corner of the room under a window. On sunny mornings, I would lie there and watch flecks of dust circulate in the light. They floated and mixed and drifted and disappeared and reappeared. It was an odd delight just to be with them. At some point, the flecks turned into numbers Numbers would float and mix and drift and disappear and reappear, sometimes alone, sometimes with other numbers. They arranged themselves in designs that arose and fell apart, arose and fell apart. There was endless movement and endless meaning to the movement. The numbers engaged in unceasing play and due to some stroke of luck, my mind was a part of this strange choreography. The numbers felt like friends that teased me, shared insights, fell into comfortable silence and 
offered wordless teachings. It wasn't until I discovered the Enneagram, a fascinating system that describes nine types of people, that I gained additional insight into what it all might mean. The Enneagram is a complex mandala made of numbers. It is divided into parts that together express a single universe, but just as I experienced in my childhood reveries, the primary meaning exists in the ever-shifting interplay. While it is enticing to think I enjoy solitude, I must be a five, or all twos are generous, such thoughts deprive the system of its true magic, which is to connect us to insight beyond conventional models of understanding. This is what makes it a spiritual system, one that shows who you really are, which includes, but goes far beyond, your personality. With the Enneagram, we untether ourselves from the merciless treadmill of self-improvement to see what is already perfect in ourselves in others, and in every moment. This is a warrior's journey. It takes courage to look at what we cannot see under normal circumstances. I hope that this book will support you to do so. This work is a result of my decades-long investigation into both the Enneagram and the Buddha Dharma. They have mixed in my mind to create the amalgam that follows it is important to acknowledge right up front that the ideas in this book are, as far as I know, mine and mine alone. That is the good news and the bad news. Good, because it might offer something fresh. Bad, because I may be full of it. One never knows. I hope you know what I'm hinting at. Don't take my word for anything. I can't even say how much I mean that. Please consider what is contained herein and then investigate it for yourself. What you find to be true and or useful is now your own wisdom and you can forget about me. Same goes for what you find impossible to corroborate. Ignore it and forget about me. In fact, just forget about me altogether and simply listen to your own wisdom mind. That is what engenders trust in me. Make up your own mind. Make up your own mind. Yes, yeah. right. Me too. When when I read that prologue, I mean, and obviously I know you, but I was like, yes. Like, <laughs> oh. I, I just thought that's so beautiful and so perfect. And that engenders trust in, you know what? I'm I'm gonna tell you what I know, but don't take my word for it. You need to find what is right for you. That's right. And that is one of the most profound things I think about not just the Enneagram or what I have learned from reading about it, but Susan, from you, you are just an incredibly generous, uh, wonderful, and I will use the word incredibly special oh, person. Thank you. You really, and I'm not just saying that because fours like to be special. Four, fours like to be special. We do. But it's it's so true. I can't gush enough Aww. about <laughs> this, but it's it is a really transformative book. I can't get enough of the Enneagram. I want to keep learning more about it. And and like the meditation cushion, which I have a little bit more of a like push pull with, it has to do with like going through it just at the pace and 
phase that it can happen, which is like writing, which is just one word at a time. Exactly. So um, I, I want to thank you so much for your time. And um, I don't know, there's about a million more things I could keep talking about with you. But thank you so much for uh, for talking with me oh, today. Thank you so much for talking with me and for being my friend. And mm-hmm. I would come back anytime to continue the conversation. And I'm so happy that you're enjoying the book. That that means a lot to me. I know you know what it takes to do this. And we've known each other since early in our writing days. Yeah. yeah. And I just, your, your positive regard means a lot. Thank you, Michelle. Uh-huh. My pleasure. Hmm. Well, in spite of all my talking through this episode, I do hope you've been able to get a sense of the wisdom that Susan has brought to not just one topic, but two topics and combining them in the Buddhist Enneagram. I am, again, so happy to um, count her as my friend and that she has shared her wisdom and knowledge on this inscrutable system with the world. Yet another thing that I had wanted to talk with her about was the whole idea of self-exploration being a warrior's journey. Bravery and courage to see ourselves clearly is the whole theme of this podcast and of the writing that I gravitate towards. The chapter in her book that is titled with the same name as her book, The Buddhist Enneagram, starts off with a quote from Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche, who said, A warrior is one who is not afraid of himself. And then the chapter begins with Susan saying, In the Buddhist tradition I was trained in, the primary obstacle to spiritual attainment is being afraid of yourself. And what Susan writes about nines are that they see everyone else's point of view. They are divided from their own intuition. The reason that both these ideas, all these ideas are trustworthy to me is that I can see clearly how much this explains me to me. I do that. I take on other people's points of view. I listen, absorb, and imagine it. And by the way, that's not necessarily all bad. But Doing that can leave me in the center of a whirlwind of choices and options and opinions and paths, not knowing what I think and often unable to move and decide my own clear interest or intention. What might it really mean for me to discover and know and not be afraid of myself? Well, that is the journey I am still on. And the reason why that idea is also trustworthy to me is because I have spent more time trying to just be, trying to just trust my own gut and not take on other people's agendas. And it might be a little too tied up in a neat bow to say that it has made me happier, but often it does make me feel happier. For example, moving to Maine. I never knew why I've always felt drawn to this place, 
but I have, and I couldn't ever really explain it. And now I'm here, and I love it. There's something just um, right about it. There's something that I go, oh, this was something that spoke to me. And like meditation, following my own gut can be a simple and clear thing that I can choose, but actually doing it is never necessarily all that easy. How about you? Any nines out there? Issues and sagas in trusting your gut? The other thing that has been clear to me, though not simple and easy, is this podcast. It scares me every time I try to figure out what to do next, but doing it feels like the most me thing that I could do. I do very much hope you will check out The Buddhist Enneagram by Susan Piver. There's a link to it in the show notes. Don't do it because I told you, though. Do it because you want to, okay? Here are some other things you really don't have to do. Don't follow me on Twitter. Don't sign up for my monthly newsletter. It's called Hit Pause, and it is the place where you might be able to suddenly detect that nine talking style of saga. Don't share this podcast unless you really think it's something someone else might like. And please only do the thing your gut tells you to do. And I wish you much courage and bravery in that intrepid adventure. I will say to you, as I always do, thank you so much for making it all the way to the end of the podcast and for daring to listen. And nothing's gonna break my fall. There's nothing in the protocol. It's like swimming up waterfall or taking away the ground. Taking away the ground. It's like taking away the ground.